Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Black won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building. You're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economic. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industry. Control business and industry. And put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches never changed anything. You know, I was talking and didn't have my mic open. All right, time for another installment of Rich Miles. Tuesdays is uh, Homeschool Tuesdays. But I've had, uh, like in the last three weeks, or months really, like pop-up road trips. Uh, road trips that I had planned for like since last December or November but just got around to taking them like three or four weeks out. So 
like this time last week, at this time, I was up and in. We just took off maybe 15 minutes earlier or 10 minutes earlier from Orlando's airport. So last week was a, a one-day road trip to New Orleans. Flew to New Orleans from Orlando, came back the same day. The week before that, uh, where was I? And I started off with D.C., Western Maryland, West Virginia. Uh, and then back to D.C., then back to Florida. And, oh, then I did a whole week out in Oklahoma. And uh, that, that was a full seven days. And then last Tuesday, uh, like I say, this I was up in the air. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're getting organized here. I believe we got a, a homeschool person in the studio for today. So what we're going to do, because like I say, today's podcast, we, we want to tie it into homeschooling, a topic that I think people should be not only homeschooled, but in mainstream education. Township literacy, are you living in the right community? 619-768-2945. And, um, oh, you know what? We'll, we'll pay the way since it's Homeschool Tuesday, a dollar per day for private education. I saved the most amazing story for now. What happens when you're really poor? You want to educate your kids, but you can only spare a dollar a week. Can private schools succeed on a dollar a week? Yes, they can. Some background. America didn't always have state-run schools. Parents taught kids. Communities set up local schools. Kids learned. Then, in about 1840, in Massachusetts, no surprise, a man named Horace Mann, he's often called the father of public education, said the state had to step in. Once there was public education, he said nine-tenths of the crimes in the penal code would become obsolete. Of course, that never happened. Now I think we have nine-tenths of the crimes in public schools, but that's another story. My point is that America got state-run schools, and now America is the role model for the rest of the world, so in India, China, Africa, governments run schools. But many of their schools are horrible. Sometimes no teacher shows up. When they do, some sleep during class. I know this because this man has spent the last 10 years visiting schools in the poorest parts of the world. When I first came to Ghana, I I met with just astonishment, because private schools, they say, are for the rich, for the elite, for the middle classes. But what astonished him was learning that even in these places where parents earn only a dollar a day, they will often take their kids out of free government schools and instead pay, typically a dollar a week, so their children can attend private schools like this one. village like this, there are six private schools. Can you imagine that? A small village, six private schools. What we found in my study was that in poor areas like this, the majority of school children are in private school. And these schools outperform the government schools at a fraction of the teacher cost. And why? When they have less money? Because they want to please their customers, the parents. 
The reason why the private schools are better than the government schools is because there's a private owner. If you don't teach as they expect, you'll be fired and replaced. James Tooley joins us now. He wrote this book about his travels with the subtitle, How the World's Poorest People Are Educating Themselves. So, James, you spend about half the year in very poor parts of the world. Mm. Why? I, I guess um, ever since I was very young, I wanted to serve the poor. And uh, 10 years ago, I went into the slums of Hyderabad in India um, for various reasons. I had a hunch that I would find something remarkable going on, a bit like perhaps you described in pre-state education America earlier. And sure enough, I went into these slum areas in the city of Hyderabad, and almost on every street corner, there was a private school, a low-cost private school. In those days, a dollar a month. Ten years ago now, perhaps a dollar a week. And they were serving poor communities, and I thought, this is something really remarkable. I want to find out more. But there were also government schools. There are government schools in the slums or bordering on the slums in, in, these, in these places. Like, which would be free. They're free. You get free uniform, free lunch at uh, lunch times. You get free books. And yet poor parents, like the parents you showed on that, uh, that clip there, they're saying, we don't want this for our children. They're not good enough. The teachers don't turn up. The teachers are not accountable to us. We want to pay a little bit of money, and we will send our children to private schools. It's a remarkable revolution that's taking place. It is. And now the BBC has aired a documentary about James Tooley and what he learned. The documentary reveals a lot about the snotty, pompous attitudes held by the education establishment. And do we really believe that unregulated, unlicensed organizations, which are not accountable to anybody except their own, which have no governance structure, are the best way forward? I think not. And the BBC interviewed the government official who's in charge of state schools in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. And in that very poor country, she arrived for the interview in her brand new Mercedes and then had nasty things to say about parents who send their kids to private schools. They are dumb, she says. Ignoramuses. They don't have the information that the public schools are free. Those that do know, she says, just pay for status. But the most important point is fake status symbol. In quotes, fake status symbol. They want to be seen as rich parents, caring parents. James, she says these parents don't know what they want. It's, it's been a theme throughout the program, hasn't it? These parents, she said that word, these poor parents are ignoramuses. It just, it hurts me every time I hear it. These poor parents are not ignoramuses. We've done testing in these schools. Um, we found that the private school children are outperforming the government school children across the board in their subjects. They're doing better, and it's for a fraction of the cost. These poor parents are not stupid. How can these schools afford to do it on a buck a day? The cost of living is lower in these countries, so it's not quite as dramatic as it sounds, but nonetheless, teachers are paid considerably less than in the public schools. That's, that's the key. Maybe a fifth uh, of the salaries, a quarter or a fifth of the salaries, in, are there in the private schools compared to the government schools. These are low-paid teachers, often untrained in the government sense, but they're getting better out of their children. Why? Because they're there in the classroom, they care about their children. Well, the the government teachers, I assume, care, and they're, they're in the classroom. I don't, know, I don't know if you're going to show the sleeping teacher. This is one of the, one of the things we found when we went to the schools. Um, uh, with the BBC crew, the very first the very, first, uh, the very first school we went to, uh, 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 we were there announced. 
The school knew we were coming. We were there with that, the lady there. And the school teacher was fast asleep at his desk. I would not have allowed the BBC to show this film if it's not something that you see every single time you go into these government schools. Something like that. So because they have a government job, they can't be fired, they can't get a raise if they're really good, they don't care? It's, again, the same thing that we heard earlier from your, your union representative. These guys have got tenure too. You, you know, it's easier, uh, it's easier to, I, 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 I don't know, it, it, you cannot remove these government teachers. Possibly in extreme circumstances, you can move them from one school to another, but that's only if you find them you know, drunk in the morning, molesting students. In extreme cases, you can do that. Mostly you can't touch them. And that's, you know, that's the problem that you see with large. It's a recipe for mediocrity. It's a recipe for not caring. Yeah. And poor parents don't want that. They will not acquiesce in mediocrity. This is the story that, you know, in a sense, you know, people here should be inspired by this. The poorest people on the planet are saying, it's not good enough for us. You know, you in America, you've got a lot to be inspired by there, I think. Well, I'm inspired, and we all thank you for your work. Thank you, James Tooley. When we return, what does this mean for American schools? Okay, it's Homeschool Tuesday, and uh, we have our uh, uh, resident uh, educator here. Uh, we're going to bring her on in a moment, uh, Joyce Burgess. We hit, we we missed about a month with her, uh, but that's due to these pop-up road trips. Like I said, a week ago today, I was up in the air. I was probably over the Gulf of Mexico right now. Last week, today's podcast is titled "Township Literacy: Are You Living in the Right Community?" And I'm, I'm relating this to education because education affects every part of our lives. Six one nine seven six eight two nine four five is the uh, live stream number. Now, um, what I, and I just really ran across this last night, uh, but um, I didn't have a name for it, but I have a name for it now. There, um, in the United States, towns, cities, townships, whatever you want to call them, in the United States, Probably around the world, but this concept for the United States, um, wherever you live, it could be Chicago, Illinois, Taft, Oklahoma, Podunk, Iowa, um, Redwood City, California. All of these places are classified. Now, when in the, in the United States. You have six classifications of cities or community, which are named towns, cities, uh, townships, what have you, but based on population, based on population. So, and, and I'm going to tie this into to education because I, what I've coined here, township literacy, I believe that this should be taught in schools or taught at home or someplace. But anyway, so there there's six distinctions. First-class cities, or what they call first-class cities, um, have a population of 100,000 people or more. That's first-class cities here in the United States have a, a population of 100,000 people or more. Second-class cities in the United States 
have a population of anywhere from 20,000 to 999 people. Third-class cities in the United States have population, and this is all based on population. It's not based on standard living or anything like that, but population. Third-class cities in the United States have populations of 8,000 people to 19,999 people. Fourth-class cities have populations of 3,000 people to 799 people. Fifth-class cities in the United States have a population of 1,000 people to 299 people. And sixth-class cities in the United States have populations of less than 1,000 people. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm saying that this should township literacy, you know, what cl- where you live, I personally believe, has some impact to a very high degree on whether you can individually prosper, and if you have a family, you can support that pro- that family properly where you live. There. I believe also like like if you're homeless in San Francisco, which is a first class city based on population because it's got over a hundred thousand people, if you're homeless in San Francisco, if you move to let's say a fourth class city that has a population of three thousand to no more than seven hundred and ninety nine people, you can actually go from pauper to prosperity simply by moving. Now, from, for some people, it might take a 30-minute drive from where you, I mean, you know what, I'm going to put it at 31 minutes because for some reason, the average person out here, no matter where you are in the world, if it's outside of 30 minutes the way you lay your head down at night, for some reason, people won't look for a job in those places. They won't look for affordable housing in those places. 31 minutes away. It's, it's some kind of psychological cutoff at theory. Now, you do have some people that will do, you know, do 30 minutes. I mean, excuse me, 60 minutes. And, you know, you got your commuters. You know, they'll they'll jump on a train. They'll, they'll drive an hour or two to work each way. Some, fl- you know, fly in or what have you. Um, so it, it, is, it has all these variables. But. A lot of you know, thirty minutes is thirty to sixty minutes. That's to cut off for a lot of people. Um, in any event, so uh, like I mentioned it on this podcast, where I got a well, the deceased friend of mine. He passed last September, and I found out from his widow afterwards, like three four months afterwards, that their rent that they were paying for a two bedroom apartment is $1,750. I suggested to the widow about, matter of fact, it was on one of these road trips about three weeks ago. Um, I said, look, if you move from, because they're in a suburb of Washington, D.C., in Montgomery County, Maryland. I said, if you, you know, if you just drive, what, 30 to 45 minutes away, an hour at best to a part of West Virginia, you can cut that seventeen fifty in half, at least in half. 
she didn't bite for whatever reason. So uh, now she's living, or they were living when he was alive, in a first-class populated area. And like I say, if you move to, and some people, and I, I believe that, now I'm no doctor, he died of a, a massive heart attack, I believe that $1,750 per month rent contributed to the distress that triggered that heart attack. But hey, I'm no doctor. I didn't perform my autopsy or nothing like that. But my way of thinking is, um, and that's what I've been doing this year myself. Matter of fact, I, I've been concentrating on six-class cities or, or populations. I look for affordable, like this year I've, I've been fortunate enough to purchase quite a number of acres in different locations in the United States without partners. There's no way I could have pulled this off in a first-class populated area, a population because it's supply and demand. All right. There's no way you can buy an acre of land in a place that's got 100,000 people or more um, for like, I think the lowest I paid was like 75 bucks an acre. There's no way I'm going to do that in a first, first class uh, populated area. I can't do it in a D.C., Detroit, Baltimore, Miami, San Antonio, Texas, Los Angeles, California, uh, San Francisco. I can't can't do it. However, if you venture to a fourth class town, fourth, fifth, or sixth class town, you can do it. I primarily focus on sixth class towns, places that have a population of 100,000 people, I mean, excuse me, of less than 1,000 people. You also notice this with these classifications of towns. You know the place where they do all this, all the marching over the years? Um, they were in first-class towns, got populations of 100,000 or more. Or have you also noticed, like, these these shootings, uh, special measures of black men, American men, that have been killed? Every last single one of them have been in a place with first-class populated areas with a population of 100,000 people or more. You don't hear about crimes, and there are crimes that happen in all places, but you don't hear about any high-profile crimes in, in third. Actually, I would even... Venture down. Well, no, I'm gonna go down to third. Places that have populations of like eight thousand to no more than nineteen thousand people. You know, a place like Nome, Alaska, Bangor, Maine, Bowley, Oklahoma. Um, you don't hear about marches, crime, or homelessness. All the little towns that I've visited, like in Oklahoma, black towns, which so far, I think the highest population I've visited, maybe 300 people, no homeless population. 
All right. So anyway, um, we're going to do more on this topic, um, township literacy, in future podcasts. But, you know, if if you're struggling financially, uh, oh, let me go also this. You're going to learn things. Like I'm learning things like in these little small towns that you just don't, you know, you won't. I, I'll give you one example. I took a a workshop in a place called Philo, or Philo, Ohio, some years ago. Learn how to build earthships. These are homes that are made from things that people threw away, they, you know, recyclables, old tires, tin cans, bottles, you name it. it people take things, trash that people throw away and turn them, build houses out of them, homes out of them. It's called earthships. You can look it up. I, well, I took this thing in uh in Philo, Ohio, at Blue Rock Station. We had uh, one of the Jay Warren King on here maybe a year or so ago. Um, he was talking, you know, and we're, we're going to have them back on soon. But in any event, the most astute home builder there, because most of us didn't know anything about home house building, was a guy that was homeschooled. This guy was homeschooled. And I, I felt I looked at my college degree in a whole different light now because this guy was leading the camp. I mean, he didn't even have to be there. He already knew how to build a house without bank finance. He, that, that was part of his homeschool training. He was just getting the experience on how to build a house using stuff that people threw away. All right. So we'll, we'll actually, we'll go more on um uh, what do you call it? Uh, township literacy, you know. Like, say, it's you know, what what is the best for me? Put me in a six class town. Okay, less politics. Um, it, in the homeschooling thing, um, it, it's just better all the way around. But we'll go deeper into detail on this. Uh, now let's go to our homeschool expert here, Joyce Burgess. And Joyce, before you say a word, let's see. Your last podcast uh, did over th- had over thirteen hundred downloads. So congratulations on it. Took me about three or four weeks to tell you that, but anyway, now you know. Wow! So congratulations to you and to me. That's good news. I'm glad to know that. Well, I'm every week, so more congratulations. Thank you for that content. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, these were pop-up road trips that I did, so I didn't have time really to, to uh, you know, say, we don't, you know, don't call in tomorrow. But it, it was, And then on the first leg, I planned on doing podcasts, but the people that I wanted to help, they got, they went missing in action. Like then on the second one, to um, I was in Taft for an entire week, Oklahoma and Muskogee County, and but I was I was doing the podcast from uh, my motel room, and uh, then I got like on the very first one I got mixed up on the time, because I was used to East Coast time, but I was in Central time. Um. So that's how that went that week. I did podcasts, but it was, I guess, I, you know, anyway, I missed my audience that week. And then last 
this time I was up near over the Gulf of Mexico, uh, heading into uh, New Orleans for the day. So now, anyway, we're back here on um, uh, Homeschool Tuesday. Let, let me ask you this now. You and your uh, husband, part of your homeschool lifestyle, uh, you, I guess there were family road trips that acted, and the road acted as um, um, a classroom. Uh, any yeah. lessons that you can think of uh, between the Because I guess when you were traveling, you were in big places as well as small places. Um, could you share with us any lessons that your children learned on, on those trips? Well, I think one of the biggest lessons that my children learned on road trips was that education is not just institutional and it's not brick and mortar. They learned that education is everywhere, uh, and they learned that, you know, it's not just about even the core subjects, that education is about the core subjects, but that's not the only thing that um, signifies that you have a great education, or the, you know, it's the academics. And they also learned to just be relaxed, that you all, you're always learning, um, you Learning is not from 7 till 3 o'clock, you know, and learning is not just in my neighborhood. One of the things that's so sad in some of these small communities, um, well, I'm not going to even say small communities, L.A. I, I just would say where a lot of our African-American children are concerned, they have not even gone across the river in their own town. So a lot of right. them don't even know that education expands beyond where they live. And so those are some of the, the top lessons that my children learned was education is not institutionalized. It's not just institutionalized. It's not brick and mortar, nor is it just a schedule. They also learned that education is just a, uh, it's a, it's a daily improving. It's an, and, and I think one of the best things, that they learn from all the travel is to to make the the simple everyday moments important, and just how much you can gain from just every day, just the simple simple lessons of every day. Because one of the things our children must learn, and that is, along with the academics, of course, they're they're not even getting excellent academics, but it's character and manners, and those are some of the things that are missing among our children, you know, especially, you know, one of the things that George Washington Carver said was how it's important that you treat children and old people with the utmost respect. But even now, our our young children, they won't even treat old people with respect, you know. Now, down here in the South, you know, we're yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. It's not a point of the slave mindset, but it's just a point of saying yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, as a point of respect and as a point of knowing that, okay, this is an adult, this is an older, an elder adult, then I must show honor and respect. Because if you address the president, I don't care who you are, you're going to not say, yeah, Mr. President. You know, you're going to say, yes, sir, or you're going to say, you know, you're going to honor him. And, you know, those are some lessons, some little very basic lessons that my children learned. And, of course, all of us being in the car for several hours, it taught us uh, a sense of closeness that I think we still share as a family, 
that sense of being considerate of one another and being respectful of each other. Uh, so those are just some very vital and very significant simple lessons that we learned that should be taught anyway, but those are some of the great things that we learned about being on the road. It was great. Let, let me ask you this. Now, um, I guess it was about three weeks ago. I gave you a – maybe I was still in Florida then. Uh, I gave you a call about um, – a young lady that needed some help because uh, mm-hmm. she was facing homelessness. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, she was in um, Norman, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, So wait, three weeks ago I was in um, Taft, Oklahoma. Now, Norman, and I'm, I'm tying this into uh, Township Liberty. Norman, Oklahoma has a population of uh, like over 110,000 people, so it would be classified as a first-class city uh, based on population. It has nothing to do with standard living. Now, my, my business in, in Oklahoma is primarily in Taft, which is – Rank is a six-class city. It's got, you know, under a 1,000 people. And one of the reasons why I'm in the rural area and Tampa is a rural area is because I can't afford it. It's as simple as that. Um, and uh, now, I'm getting, now, tying this back to, I guess, you were with, with you and your, and your children, because a, a lot of people learn by, you know, seeing what their parents did. But if mm-hmm. your parents lived in a so-called first-class city, uh, which has got a population of 100, over 100,000, there are other topics that a lot of people don't really discuss, they, like inflation. I, I'll give a good example. When my mother bought her first home, house, she paid nineteen thousand nine hundred for it in Washington D.C. There's no such thing as a nineteen or twenty thousand dollar house in Washington D.C. in, in two thousand seventeen. It doesn't exist. So, Not at all. <laughs> so I base what I do not only on with the 1960 standard, but I I go all the way back to like 1938. I I look mm-hmm. at what houses cost in 1938, and then which means I've got to go rural, and then I've got to probably plan on building something um, so I can fit, you know, so I don't have to borrow from a bank or, 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 or stuff like that. So my question to you is. Sure. With your children, you and your husband, I'm because uh, most people don't. I mean, people learn by observation. When your children started to leave the nest, did they stay in the same town locally, or did they move to places that were uh, more affordable to live in? Well, I live in a town with less than fifteen thousand people. My metropolitan area is about twenty minutes 
well, 15, 20 minutes away, and it's about 800,000 people, Baton Rouge. Okay. So, you know, we have the, but Baton Rouge is still a very small town in that, you know, we are still growing. We're still improving. We're definitely mm-hmm. not like a Houston or a San Francisco or Atlanta. Right. So, but what my children have done is, of course, they're spread out among the Baton Rouge area. Uh, I only have one son that's in New York and another, and because he was in the military, and, of course, you know, right. he was stationed. And, but the other children, uh, and then, of course, I had one son that moved to L.A. to do some work, but the majority of the now children are here very close by. Very, yeah, Los Angeles very expensive, is, is as, very he, expensive. as he has found out. <laughs> yes. And, um, but, you know, it's interesting with me and my siblings, two of my siblings, once again, military took them away. Mm-hmm. But, the you know, the girls all stayed here. I think if you're military or maybe in, you know, some engineering field or maybe accounting field, you tend to want to get away. But I think... But most of the time I've seen a lot of those children returned. I'm I'm speaking of extended relatives and friends, but my children, the majority of them are still here in my area. I can get okay. to my children right. within 20 to 30 minutes. Okay. okay. So they, they're, they, you live in a, probably an affordable place. Um, I live in a very, and Louisiana is just an affordable, affordable place to live. Louisiana is, they, they may say Louisiana Louisianians do not make a lot of money, but it's it's mm. not about the money because everything is comparable or everything parallels the money that's made. And right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, that, that's so what I'm here in Louisiana, the widow. cost of living, yeah, the cost of living is definitely, I mean, you, things are expensive, don't get me wrong, because if you're going to rent an apartment here in, Baton, in in our city, you're probably going to pay anywhere from 1000 to $1,500 if it's two bedrooms. But, right. you know, if you, you know, you, you make a decent salary here, $30,000, $40,000 teacher salary, and uh, the cost of living is not that much, and people are very hospitable, we're very generous here. You know, we just, we're the South, so. Right. You know, what's interesting, I, I interviewed him. I got to call him up and see if he, the, the mayor of Bozier, Alabama, has to see if he's still mayor, but it doesn't matter. He was living in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, and through, through his travels, he ended up in Bozier, Alabama, ended up moving from Los Angeles to Bozier. Is it and, Bozier, Louisiana? Because we have a Bozier. No, no, Bozier, Alabama. Oh, Bozier. Bozier, Alabama. Okay, and he ended up, uh, he's got like 20 acres of land in Bolger, and there's no way he could have pulled that off in Los Angeles. Yeah, you're right. Um, and um, we'll do a, a program one day probably on seeing where, um, you know, good place. To, I mean, because like I said, that's why I bought up Township Literacy. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that is a crucial part, and you can mix that into geography. Because, like I said, yeah. a lot of people who are struggling, they could be struggling in New York or Los Angeles. If they move, in some places you can move an hour away or 30 minutes away. And the social, right. I mean, the economics change that drastically in 30 to 45 minutes. 
and other places right. you might have to move two hours away, and other places you might have to, you know, um, you know, for me it's worth it to fly to Tulsa, Oklahoma from Florida, and then take another forty-five minutes to get to to Taft because I'm able to do in Taft what I can't do in this part of Florida or in Washington D.C. or someplace like that. Yes, I understand. Um, but oh, getting—I was getting back to this lady uh, that called. So yeah, now she was two hours away. Um, so um, geography—how did you, when you taught geography to your children? What was your angle on teaching it? Uh, other than the, now, the road trips that you guys did was really important because that's a that's mm-hmm. a live a moving and living. Geography lesson, mm-hmm. but when it came down to like the sit down stuff, how did you handle that? The sit down geography lessons is your question. Yes. Uh huh. Well, uh, there's a wonderful book that I recommend, and it's the World Geography, and it's uh, by Abeka, Abeka Publishers. One of the things we did was we 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 learned about the entire world using this curriculum. Of course, it teaches about um, certain hemispheres that we live in. It teaches um, all of the... the uh, it's kind of hard for me to explain geography because I'm really not a geography buff. However, it just taught us from just through word what our country looked like. It was mm-hmm. different than when I learned about the tropical areas of some areas of Texas and the dry, some dry areas of Arizona. It was so different in reading about those dry regions and arid regions in Arizona. I mean, when I actually went there to see why it's so dry. Okay. So that was a that was a uh, a big big lesson for me and for the children. You know, we had learned about the arid areas, the dry regions, and then of course going to Hawaii and learning about the rainforest and just the tropical uh, rainforest in Hawaii, and seeing just how fertile it is in Hawaii, and actually being there. So I think the geography lessons that that I taught them really helped set the foundation for them to actually experience the physical part of traveling our country. And of course, with my having gone out of the country and reading about the, the land in certain uh, countries and actually being there, I can actually see that. To me, reading a book, or reading about a certain area or region is you enjoying it from a verbal perspective, and then when you actually experience it physically, it's just another dimension of the pure pleasure that you find when you actually have a chance to go visit these places. Right. Uh, so right. we use the book to give us the intel or the knowledge that we needed to, and and we would learn about a certain area before we actually were there. So that gave the children 
and a great opportunity to really experience it in such a vast way that they probably never would have had an opportunity to experience it had they not did the research before. I'll give an example. I've been very intrigued lately with our universe and our solar system and just everything space and stars. Not saying that we're probably, I'm probably ever going to get to the end of these places, but just reading about it, uh, watching DVDs and videos that explain the very essence of the universe and nature and stars and space and the galaxies, it gives me such a dimension of the unknown. And then, of course, you, you, I mean, you just never know. I mean, I get a chance to go to NASA, and I can visualize and actually experience watching the videos or, 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 the, or the physical experiments or the, 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 the rides or the examples of being in space at somewhere like NASA or Space Center. So... Um, you know, they had a chance to experience that in a way that made the whole essence of travel just wonderful, that they probably never would have, ex- would have enjoyed had they not learned about the place beforehand. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Matter of fact, uh, I can spend some podcasts right off that. I'm thinking... Um, Let's say, um, and this is why I like homeschooling versus government-sponsored education. Um, I think I've mentioned this, uh, well, not only in the United States, but I'll stick to the United States in this case. There's a a program on cable television, and you can see the uh, videos on YouTube online. Of the brown, I think they the Brown family, and they live in a remote part of Alaska. I, how can I? Mm-hmm. It's um, teaching people. I mean, educating people, whether they're children or adults, on how to live in the current environment that they're living in. In other words, what set of skills do you need to live in Chicago, Illinois? Versus what skills do you need to live in Barrow, Alaska? Are you asking me um, that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your take on that because, um, um, like, for instance, I, I, I think, personally, if you live in a place like Chicago, Illinois, which is classified by population as a first-class city, because Chicago's got like over 3 million people, I think that a person, it should be mandatory that they know this. some courses, On matter of fact, every year from starting from grades 1 going to grades 12, law literacy. Because, you know, you got property tax issues up there, you have crime issues up there, you have civil court issues up there, whereas, uh, and it's more of a 
the way the city of Chicago is set up, it's set up for consumers, people who buy. Mm-hmm. Whereas in mm-hmm. a place like Barrow, Alaska, or Whittier, Alaska, you you make their professions in both of those places that you don't have in either one of those cities. And you're going to need skill sets in those places that you, you just, you know, they, they don't, for instance, like in Barrow, Alaska, uh, or even a place more remote than that, you, you're going to, you might have to know how to build a house without bank finance. Mm-hmm. There is no hospital. There is no EMT. There's no police to call. You know, so if you had, like, conflict resolution, if you're in a relationship or, or husband or wife or parents and children, you're going to have to have conflict resolution, have skill, be skilled in that because you, there is no local police department to call to come and, and break up a fight. If you break a finger or a bone, you're going to have to know something in those areas because there's no hospital nearby. You know, so, yeah, yeah, education based on your personal geography, um, you know, you have a lot of kids that get arrested um, for a lot of simple things in a place like Chicago, whereas in a smaller place, you're not going to get arrested. There might be other there's de facto law, and, you know, we can go into because when you're in a remote place, like someplace like remote place of Montana or Alaska or Minnesota, you know, the de facto law outside of human beings is if you had to deal with a bear. You know, so people that grew up in those environments um, know how to deal with the lay of the land. They they know bears, well, they know moose, but in Chicago yeah, they don't. Right. Well, one of the things about growing up in in remote or small communities is, of course, you know the lay of the land, but it's also there. Are, it's also what we call community. You know, a lot of people like the the, the area I live in. We all know one another. Everybody is right. family pretty much here. And there's a sense of community. Our our police department, we have a dedicated police department here. So a lot of the gentlemen work on our force. They actually live in our city. I would say maybe um, half of them live in our city. So that makes it different than if you had to come into a community to work and you don't really know the people. You just do a job. Right. But, but when you live in a community, you know the people, and you have some level of empathy, depending on what it is. So, um, Very guess, good point, is, because uh, the, the Amish, they operate that way, community. Uh-huh. You're learning things that way. Uh, I know in Taft, Oklahoma, it's community. You know, 300 yes. people or less, it's, it's all community. Uh, but however, it was, you know, but in your largest, going back to Chicago or Detroit or someplace like that, it's mm-hmm. amazing where you have a huge population, 
But for the most part, most many people live as lone wolves with no sense of yeah. community. Some people do in those places. But it's, yeah. you know, occasionally you might hear a story like coming out of New York City where somebody got mugged in a, a high-rise apartment building and they're nine or ten apartments on their floor and everybody heard it, her person getting beat up and, must, you know, molested or raped, but mm-hmm. nobody bothered to call the police because they didn't want to get involved. Zero community. And that's why I think mm-hmm. what you're talking about, we can call it community one-on-one. That needs uh-huh. to be, let's say, exactly. like I said, growing I mean, living where you're living, you guys live it. So that's how your children got educated. But yeah. I think that needs to be mandatorily taught in a lot of your larger towns. But Well, you know, it's, you know, we're not going to even begin to talk about the problems in our community. A lot of problems that we're facing among our young people, among the generation Mm -hmm. that's under us. You know, it used to be when I was a child, children had a chance. Children could look to the adult, their mom, and then they could look to the top tier, the grandparents. They could look forward to the future. Nowadays, children are living among their, their peers. If I were to ask the parents, who is the most important person in your child's life, a, a, a child in public school, who is the most, if I were to ask the parent, who is the most important person in your child's life? The question, I mean, the answer would not be the parent. The answer would be some other child at school. Because children are inspired and governed by their peers. And so having said that, that's what children are looking to now. They're not looking to that parent generation. They're not looking to the grandparents because the grandparents are 30 years old, okay? And the grandparent is not mature. And the grandparent is not a great role model for the average child. And the children nowadays are looking to their peers. And that's what makes it so sad is because here we are living in a community, a world where there's nothing to look forward to and there's no future. And our children feel like, you know, I was talking with a young man the other day, very young. He's under 25 years old. He says, I'm tired of living. And I wish I can just end my life right now. And it's so mm. sad because I'm thinking, what, and this is a young man, they, they, they just, everything is just in the now. You know, you get it so fast. Technology, I want it now. You can. Right. You can go online, you can download music, you can get everything right now. So we're a child, especially the things that are important to children nowadays. But it's sad that the things that are important to children are not the things that should be important to them. And so, you know, yeah. nowadays it's just, you know, it's just that that way. I can't remember what Booker T. Washington said, and I, I'm going to look it up. I'm not, I'll let you know when I find it. Because it's one of the truest statements I've, I've, I've read in a long time. But, 
you, if you have something to say, go ahead. But I'm going to look this quote up on Booker T. Washington, so I won't. Yeah, well, yeah, we live in um, we live in an instant world. Uh, instant oatmeal, instant uh, oats, uh, instant coffee, instant tea. Yeah. Uh, like, so you can go on the internet and uh, look up stuff in uh, you know record fashion. Um, oh, even instant relationships. <laughs> you, uh, you can go yeah. online and get an instant relationship, almost instant. And then when it yeah. comes to problems, because a lot of people have like, what I call ninety day relationships. <laughs> they they uh-huh. meet somebody uh-huh. new and everything's going good and then within that ninety days people being people, you know, something's gonna pop up. But they don't have the patience uh, or skill set to work through something like to be very simple. And they break up and they take that baggage yeah. on to the next relationship, to the next relationship, to the next relationship. So we we exactly. now it's interesting that you said. But now when it comes to millennials, um, I look at a lot of millennials is they look at you know what, I don't want to have that thirty year mortgage and struggle with debt like my parents or grandparents did. Right. I, I look at them a lot that way because I ran into matter of fact last September up in Vermont, uh, I stayed at a hostel. Uh, for the first mm-hmm. time, it, half of the people there were millennials. But I, you know, I these people like travel light and they live light. They, they don't. I mean, they they're doing some serious globe trotting. And one of the reasons why they're able to do it is because they don't have a thirty-year mortgage. They don't have a car right. or anything like that. And they're learning by traveling. Matter of fact. Um, Quite a bit of the land that I was able to pick up this year, a, a millennial gave me a lead on it because we were talking about, you know, you know, I knew a, I was up in Vermont to go to a tiny house retreat, you know, on building small mm-hmm. houses. Uh, so okay. he told me about this tiny place uh, community uh, in Terlinga, Texas, like I think it's in Brewster County. Uh, yeah, I mean that place is remote, <laughs> desert yeah. mountains. That I mean, it. You go to those places, you have to get in with locals. If you don't, you're done. Um, but um, and from that now, I, I, so I, I get that from millennials. A lot of them don't want to be saddled with debt, but then. I also look at, um, learn something from, uh, still my mother's still alive, and from her people that she grew up with. Like, she had mm-hmm. uncles that they made houses. I mean, when somebody got married, they, you know, it struck off a piece of land or an acre or two, and then they would help the kids build a house without brick, I mean, without bank finance. Now, Here's the fascinating point. That's not so much the fascinating point. I mean, building a house without bank finance, that's impressive. But they made their own lumber. So now I'm watching videos on YouTube on how to make your own lumber. Um, so, like I say, these are um, hopefully, like I say, more and more young people will pick this up, or people of all ages, particularly ones that are struggling. 
financially. Mm-hmm. You know, see see what you know, see how different people live. And and um, I found it. Yeah, okay. I found it. And it's a very true statement. Booker T. Washington said that there is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. And we have that right now, right? Having learned right. that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrong, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people right. do not want the Negro to lose their grievances because if, they, if Negroes lose their grievances or their dysfunctionality, guess what? The politicians lose their job. Not only politicians, I, but what people, uh, people I call poverty pimps, because they're, they're homeless programs out here, which it, not every homeless program is alike. But I've, I've, I've always wondered, how come they don't teach these people how to build their own shelter? That just, that's just me being thinking weird like that. But right, you're right. They it's get not money just when people politicians, for sure. Yeah. Right. It's not just politicians, but I have seen this. It's people nowadays. It's like if you're talking about something dysfunctional or something that, and don't get me wrong, you know, I've had people tell me, well, Joyce, face reality, you know, face reality, Joyce, everybody doesn't live like you. I say, well, I'm somebody. And while I'm not everybody, I live like me. And if I live like me, there are several others who live the same way. Not that we're trying to live like each other, but we are trying right. to live a life like Barry Gordy said a long time ago. Barry Gordy, the uh, inventor of Motown, said, I try not to make a lot of mistakes. He said, because I don't want to live my life making up for the mistakes that I've made. I want to live my life. And right. that's been one of my philosophies for probably 30 years or more, because I'm thinking, if, I may, if I'm living my life in constant crisis or in constant dysfunction, then I'm really not living my life. I'm just surviving. Right. And I don't want to just survive, nor did I want to teach my children how to just survive. I want to thrive. And because there is, I mean, we were not designed to live a life where we just survive. And a lot of people thinking that their dysfunctionality is there is, is the way life should be. That is not the way life should be. I'm here to tell I agree. And, and, and the I question agree. would be, well, how can it be different? Like Eleanor Roosevelt says, it, until you do something different, you're going to do the same thing over and over again, which we know is insanity. So if you want to do something different, if you want your life to be different, then you got to do something that you've never done before. And, of course, right. any kind of risk, you're going to risk. But I'd rather err on the side of positiveness and doing good than err on the side of being negative and dysfunctional all the time. And like I said, I, I talk that to my children. And one of the reasons I'm, I have no regrets, now, we all do have some measure of regrets in our life, but I don't have regrets where raising my family, raising my children are concerned, being a wife to my husband. 
because I know that I have taught them, I've modeled it before them, and by the grace of God, thank God, it seems as if so far they they got the picture. And if they do fall into some kind of hardship in their lives, they know how to get up, dust themselves off like the old song says, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start all over again. Because, you know, right. there's a scripture in the Bible that I love, and it talks about the Lord's mercy and how they're new every day. The old song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and how his mercies are new every day, just like the dew, on the, you know, in the morning time. It's new every day. And we all have an opportunity to do good and to do better. That's one thing we can do in this day and time. We can do better. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we the the resources just on the internet, uh, it's mind boggling and and, and uh, never ending. Um, yeah, the solutions are there. People just have to tap yeah. in on it. They just have to tap yeah. in on it. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And maybe, and there's probably somebody teaching the class on that on you know uh, how to use the internet to solve uh, personal problems or even social problems. Um, yeah. Because on Facebook alone, there's uh, all kind of groups for all kind yeah. of um, problems. I know if I something around the house, if I don't know how to fix it or whatever, I, let me go to YouTube, see if there's a video on it. Um, oh, and then Facebook, but that's how I found you. I found you on Facebook. I believe. Did you? I was looking for, yeah, I think it was Facebook. I was looking for somebody that can speak on, <coughs> excuse me, homeschooling. Oh, my so, word. That's good to know. Thank I you. I think, for, yeah, it had to be, it was, if it wasn't Facebook, it had to be YouTube, but I'm pretty good, I'm pretty sure it was Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Um, Facebook is good. <laughs> yeah, Facebook is is real good. So, because um, yeah. I know we can find you on Facebook. You also have a website. I um, do. Or did I find you through a search engine? <laughs> it's either Facebook well, or I was going through a search engine with homeschooling and I came across, you know, what? I think it was a search engine. I came across the organization that you and your husband put together and then from yeah. that went to Facebook. Anyway. Promote that. Uh, again, give us the name of your organization and how people can get in touch. Sure. Well, the name of my organization is National Black Home Educators. It's an organization that empowers parents to educate their children for excellence, whether you're public school, private school, or home school. And that web address is www.nbhe.net. And, uh, of course, my name is Joyce Burgess. My email address is contact at nbhe.net. But I encourage people to go out there, visit the website. It's an informational service kind of website. And one of the things I'm really excited about is Google. If you type in black homeschooling in the Google engine, NBHE will show up first. And that's been a great accomplishment for us in that we, we are first when it comes to black homeschooling on the Google engine. We've worked hard to get there, and I'm very grateful and very blessed that we have it now. We have that status. Great. 
Let me go back before we conclude here, um, back to an earlier audio where they were talking about, uh, you know, education for a dollar a day in some of these developing countries. Um, But homeschooling, which is education without the politics, uh, could you share with us how much a family might save homeschooling versus um, sending them off to a public public school? Well, here's the deal. If you're... If you're a taxpayer in a, in in your city, you're going to continue to pay taxes to your local school district. We homeschooled for almost 30 years, and we pay taxes every month. But if you are homeschooling, homeschooling is still less expensive. Say, for instance, if we could take the five thousand between five thousand and nine thousand dollars that the state says it's required to to teach a child in public school and the child probably gets less than $5 of that money, you know. It takes less than $500. I homeschooled all five of my children for less than maybe $500 a year. Mm. And that was with a lot of resources. Nowadays, we have all of these free resources, you know, online. We have Khan Academy. We have... um, uh, the Internet, anything you want to learn about, you can Google it or you can YouTube it if you want to learn about it, you know, to, you know, right. strate- you know to make it strategic. But uh, And then you have our local library, which gives you a vast amount. Of, they have pretty much all of the publishers, the homeschool publishers, they have pretty much all of their textbooks if you wanted to check those out and constantly renew them. Then we have co-ops that you can join where homeschool moms like myself have donated our old uh, homeschool books to these co-ops and parents can use those books. So it's very, very inexpensive to homeschool your child if you wanted to do it that way. Now, if you want to hire someone to homeschool your child, that's a different story. Right. But like you said, they have have homeschool co-ops. Mm-hmm. Uh, out here that people can tap into, and because that's the, one of the things that um, the young lady that uh, I put you in touch with, uh, uh, the first day of school it popped up. Uh, so that, that's why I said, well, you know, homeschool your children, and that's why we made that call. Yeah, you. yeah. Uh, and you suggested uh, the library, which is open year round. Yeah. Um, which it is as a resource. Yeah. I got she she's been off the radar for about a week. I gotta reach back out to her. But um Okay. Um maybe well, that's a workshop in itself. What do you do when you're transitioning with housing and you have to educate your children? I, I think homeschooling actually I think that whole you can turn that whole I call it opportunity of when you've been foreclosed on or evicted, you can turn all that into a learning experience for children. Mhm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's a real life situation. So, you know, where do you go for school? Where do you go for information? Where do you go uh for this particular type of resource? All that can be turned into practical <coughs> um uh Information I know with as far as 
my personal experiences, now I went to uh, primarily private school and high school, um, which was college prep. All right. Mm-hmm. So they, they did their job, which was college prep, and I, I got into college and all that. But the most practical class I took, my mother had to pay, hire somebody for it. And that was a mm-hmm. driving instructor because at my private school, they did not offer driver's ed. Mm-hmm. And with a driver's wow. license, you can you can go out and make some money, you know, delivering groceries, mm-hmm. uh, take running people on errands, um, what have you, you know, getting a chauffeur's license from there or graduating up to a CDL. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, but they, but but once again, they promoted college prep. That was their thing, and they were good at it. Uh, you went through four years of high school, and in, in in about compared to the average public school, in about two to three. Years. Mm-hmm. I mean, they mm-hmm. the boot camp, but just they just loaded you down with stuff. So that that was that's what they promoted. That's what they did. They they still do it well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some places, um, and, I, and I think a lot of people, that's why I like homeschooling, you can sort of custom make the curriculum for, um, you know, the people yeah, living in exactly. the house. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. We, uh, and the thing is, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm a homeschool life coach, and I have clients all over the country, and, you know, we make it happen. They use my recommended curriculum outlines and we do it through email we have a couple of phone conversations during the month or even once a week uh, we're texting each other we're facetiming and the children as of right now the children are doing good and the, the parents are happy because somebody else has has done all of the work for them they just need to follow my schedule and follow my outlines and my method and if they do that they should be okay it works. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, homeschool life coach. Let me ask you this. I have a friend of mine who is, uh, he's a music te- guitar instructor. That's how he mm-hmm. makes his living. For mm-hmm. not only people like himself, but for educators who might be in the public school system and are dissatisfied, or maybe they want to, Explore new avenues in education. What can they do other than contacting you uh, on well, how, how prefer, can they get involved with homeschooling? Well, it would be nice they can contact me, of course. But uh, I have several friends who are who were certified teachers, uh, teachers in the public school system, and they are homeschooling children. They've opened up their own business. Of course, we know that's not the real definition of homeschooling. They've set up a little tutoring business, but they call it the homeschool model because the homeschool model is less children. The homeschool model is more one-on-one, face-to-face tutoring. The homeschool model is focusing the curriculum or the teaching, whatever resources, to the specific needs of that child, giving them Mm. individualized learning but, of course, homeschooling is where parents, I want to get that straight, homeschooling is where parents have decided to homeschool their own children or if 
a homeschool mom like myself decides to homeschool another child in my home. That's homeschooling. But the homeschool methodology is what a lot of my teachers, my teacher friends are doing where they set up, even in their homes, they're not their children, they set up in their homes, or they set up in a business. They have a small environment. They have individualized, creative uh, instruction for that particular child, and there's one-to-one tutoring. You know, but I don't necessarily promote that. Simply okay. because if you're part of my network, then mm. and you have been, um, say, sanctioned by me and my partners, so to speak, mm. then I right. can vouch for you because I know you're doing it the way that I recommend you do it. But if you're off on, you know, doing something else, I can't. It's like David told Saul, I can't put on someone else's armor. Or, you know, I can't get into someone else's skin. I'm not saying that it's not good. I'm just saying that I can't approve it because it's not something that, I, that I've that i done myself. Okay. But if, they're, if they want to become a part of my network, then I could I could vouch for that through you know through training and through doing it the way that I know that works. Okay, I you know what I'm gonna send you some information this week. Uh, last okay. week I, I knew about mentioning this on this podcast before uh, okay. because you've got some people that have become millionaires by tutoring, and yeah. um, there was one. I gotta find the audio of the video and send it to you. Okay. Now you got LA, I have two percent battery left. <laughs> I don't know oh, what happened. Okay, to my you know, phone it's time to wrap night. up anyway. it's time to Is wrap it? up anyway. Okay. Thanks, Joyce. Uh we'll we'll pick oh, this up next week on that note. Uh yes. everyone have a All good right. rest of the day. Thank you, LA. Everybody